1 John chapter 2, picking up in verse 18. Children, it is the last hour. And just as you heard that Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have appeared. From this we know that it is the last hour. i got to tell you, if John is writing in the last hour... That means that we are here in the last minutes, if not seconds. If that was the last hour, the beginning of the final hour, if you will, we are at the very tail end of it. And this is one of the ways that we know. John says, here's how we know we're in that last hour. The rise of the Antichrist. This is how we know, he says. We know because... Antichrist is coming, and many Antichrists have appeared. The rise of the anti- what I will call the Antichrist spirit. This spirit, I believe, has been around for ages. I think you could go back thousands of years. And this demonic spirit, the spirit of Antichrist, has been around, has been poking around the world, has been doing his job, working in the agency of the devil... And before Jesus came, the primary mission of this Antichrist was anti-Semitism. Was the destruction of God's chosen people, Israel. You see, his goal, his mission, his role is to derail God's messianic plan. So until Messiah came, the derailment would be to do anything possible to keep that from happening. Destroy the chosen people and the Messiah can't come. Because you see, God put all His cards on the table. God said prophetically, Messiah would come through Israel. That He would be a Jew. That He would be of the people of Israel. He had to come through the Jewish people. Therefore, man, destroy the Jewish people and you ruin the prophetic plan of God. And if you track that through history... You see constantly those who are set against the Jewish people. I won't even take the time to do it tonight, but it's absolutely stunning to see from the days early on of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and then Jacob and his 12 sons and the 12 tribes, and then the the captivity in Egypt, and then coming out of Egypt, and the attacks that happened all the way to the Promised Land, and then once in the land, the constant attacks, the Moabites and the Ammonites and the Edomites and all the ites in the world that were against Israel. And then there were those individuals like men like Haman in Persia who who wanted to wipe them out, just get rid of the Jewish people. Man, destroy Israel, you mess up the messianic plan. Antiochus Epiphanes, that, that Greek ruler who came down and wanted to dominate and destroy Israel, didn't work. Herod himself, all of these I believe driven and inspired by Antichrist. By the spirit of Antichrist. Now, anti-Semitism clearly remains in the world today. There is still a bizarre and unexplainable hatred for the Jewish people and for the state of Israel. It doesn't make logical sense. We've talked so much about it, again, I won't go into that tonight. But the bottom line is, though the Messiah came... The truth is that that what what the devil, what Satan wants to do is he still wants to derail God's promises to Israel because there are still unfulfilled promises, the, the kingdom, the salvation of the people of Israel. 
that He said would happen. So, He's still working that angle. Destroy Israel, you destroy God's prophetic plan. Thing is, Messiah has already come. This is the last hour, the last minutes, and now we see this antagonistic, anti-Semitic spirit for what it really is. What it really is, is anti-Christ. The hatred of Israel through all the years was for a purpose. When that purpose could not be fulfilled, we come into now the last hour, and we know it's the last hour, because now the Antichrist is showing his ugly face. Many Antichrists, he says, and the Antichrist. I'll explain that in a second. But understand this, and it is good news for followers of Jesus. The Gospel train cannot be derailed. You cannot stop the work of God. Paul told Timothy, the Word remains unchanged. You cannot imprison the Word. You can't keep God's work from going forward. Let me just read this to you. This is Psalm 2. The second Psalm, verse 1. In fact, turn there. I'm going to have you turn several places with me tonight. Go ahead and turn to the second Psalm. The second Psalm, right at the beginning of the verse. Psalms fall somewhat close to the middle of your Bibles if you're having trouble finding it. Psalm 2, verse 1. Why are the nations in an uproar and the peoples devising a vain thing? Kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against His Mashiach, His anointed, saying, Let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. Well, he who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Then He will speak to them in His anger and terrify them in His fury, saying, But as for Me, I have installed My King upon Zion, My holy mountain. It's done. I have installed. My King is set. He is ready to go. You can't stop it. Nothing can. But we are in the last hour. And we know we're in the last hour, John writes, because the Antichrist has risen. That's the proof. Now, it's been jokingly said that Antichrist will not arrive on the scene wearing one of those stick-on red and white name tags that says, hello, my name is Antichrist. But we will know him by his fruit. The world will know Him by His fruit. Now some of you may say, well wait a minute, are we going to be here when Antichrist is here? I doubt it. I think not. I think the church will long be out of here. But, the world will know Him by His fruit. Antichrist is seen for what He is by what He does. And this is how I know the spirit of Antichrist has been present across the ages, generation after generation. You see, Satan doesn't know when God's going to pull the trigger. He doesn't know when God's going to unveil the next step of his plan. He only knows that he is because Satan is a student of Scripture. So he knows something's coming, and he knows in every generation the possibility is that it may happen, so he's got to be ready then. And so I believe an Antichrist spirit has been available in every generation to try and jump in and mess things up if possible. Well, here in the last hour, we know him by his fruit. Which raises the question, him or them? Him or them? The Antichrist, with a capital A and a little name tag? 
or, or many antichrists, which one is it? Again in verse 18, children, it is the last hour, and just as you heard that antichrist is coming, even now many antichrists have appeared. From this we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not really of us. For if they had really been of us, they would have remained with us, but they went out. So that it would be shown that they are all, or all are not of us. John does not deny the one Daniel calls in Daniel 9.26, the prince who is to come. He does not deny the person of Antichrist with a capital A, that, that world leader, that global deceiver who will come in the tribulation. Daniel chapter 2 references him. Daniel 7, 8, 9, and Daniel chapter 11. The book of Daniel is replete in, in all of its information about this one, this Antichrist. And Paul, the apostle, clearly taught of Antichrist as a person. He says in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 3, Let no one in any way deceive you, for the day of the Lord will not come unless the apostasy comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed. The man of lawlessness. The son of destruction. Or the word there is also perdition. The son of waste. Who opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God displaying himself as being God. See, Daniel prophesied that in Daniel chapter 11. And now Paul restates it as he writes in 2 Thessalonians. There is a man who will rise, who will enter the throne, who will declare himself to be God. He will be a global world leader. He will be a personality of personalities. He will be an orator. He will be powerful. He will be respected. He will be seen as a man of peace. All of this encapsulated in this one man. And John's own description of Antichrist calling him the beast is terrifying in Revelation chapter 13. So if you're asking me, Rick, do you believe that John thought there was going to come an Antichrist? Yes, absolutely, because he says so. But he also says many Antichrists, many Antichrists have already come. Like warning flares of the last hour. Like, like recognition, these, these spots of, of evil. And, and we've seen it, as I said, throughout history in anti-Semitism. But man, when Jesus came on the stage, Antichrist began to be seen for what he was, for who he is. And that spirit among people and luring and drawing people to follow is in the world. Antichristos in the Greek. So it's very similar to exactly how we say Antichrist. Antichristos literally means instead of Christ. Or in place of Christ. Or it can mean in opposition to Christ. Typically we think of it that way. Antichrist. He's against Christ. He's not just against Christ. He's one who comes on the scene as another Christ. One who presents himself to be an alternative to Christ. Or perhaps the real Christ. A counterfeit, if you will. Antichrists, plural, are always those who try to position themselves in the place of or instead of Jesus Christ. That can happen in a church. Steve Berenson shot me an article, and I appreciated that, Steve, about celebrity pastors and how often they're falling. The most recent right now, there's all kinds of hubbub going on about Bill Hybels 
And Willow Creek Community Church, the whole, the founder, if you will, of the whole seeker-friendly movement. And there are big issues going on there. I don't know the truth of it or what's happening, but celebrity pastors tend to fall. So please help me, because being a celebrity like I am, Steve, it's rough. Your humbleness is showing. It is, right, right. I am so thankful that the Lord has me where He has me. But the truth is, we need accountability, we need to walk together. Pastors need people with them because pastors are just people who are as flawed as anybody else and who can begin to think highly of themselves. And I am reminded that that is the spirit of Antichrist, one who would place himself or herself in the position of Christ, who would try to take that role, who would try to step into it. Now, in the text, John gives us three specific practices of these antichrists. He says many antichrists are with us. He even says some have gone out from us. John is saying some have gone from my church. I think John's probably writing from Ephesus. And so from the church in Ephesus, there were some who were seceding from the church, if you will. They were pulling back. As we talked about when we opened the letter, there are all kinds of of guesses about what the heresy was. And what these guys were doing is they went kind of from church to church to try and draw off people and start their own thing. But I like the phrase secessionists because I think that's the best one. They just basically basically are seceding from the fellowship of the church. John says they were among us. They went out from us. Three practices of those who have this antichrist spirit or function like antichrist. Number one, they break fellowship. They break fellowship with those who are of Christ. And that's important, an important distinction. We're not just talking about someone leaving the bridge to go to, you know, Life Church. Everyone at Life Church are not the Antichrist. I have some good friends there, I know this. Someone who leaves our fellowship to go to another fellowship or to plug in ministry somewhere else. That's not what I'm talking about. So let's be clear about this. Those who break fellowship with those who are of Christ. As he says in verse 19, they went out from us, but they were not really of us. For if they had been of us, they would have remained with us. But they went out so that it would be shown that they all are not of us. Breaking fellowship. Going out from among us. Because, well, truly, they just can't stay for long. These antichrists, these foxes in the vineyard, if you will, spoiling the fruit. These can't stay long because, get this, because genuine fellowship is revealing. True, honest relationship, you can only be deceptive for so long. You can only fool some of the people some of the time. And when you get in, and this is why, this is why John says in 1 John 1 7, if we walk in the light as he himself is the light, in the light, we have fellowship with one another. We've talked about this. We have koinonia. I cannot overestimate the value and the importance of koinonia. And I'm not sitting up here claiming that I'm the best at it, by the way. Oh, Rick is the king of community. No, I, I can tend to hold up. But koinonia is what we need. Steve, koinonia is what I need. I need a brother sending me articles like he sent me saying, keep your wits about you, Rick. And by the way, we've got your back. Thank you. I need accountability. I need friendship. I need understanding. And I need genuineness. I need honesty. 
the longer you're in a fellowship with other people, the harder it is to try and fool who you are. And the reality of how you think and what you do and, and what you believe. You see, these antichrists, they can't stay long. Be careful, especially, you know, I don't want to cast dispersion on all of them, but, but like traveling speakers. You know how easy it is to blow into a place and just sound impressive and stand in the place of Jesus and then blow on out and no one really knows your character or knows what's really going on in your life? You see, Antichrist breaks fellowship. This is why I believe the Hebrew pastor wrote as follows, Hebrews 10.24, Let us consider how to, how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. It's not about attendance records. It's about encouragement. It's about connection. It is about koinonia that we need so that we can know each other and see the truth in each other. Man, we, we need more church, not less. Well, we need less. But we don't need less church. We need less in the church. <laughs> but we need more of this, more time together. I'm so glad you're here, but where's everybody else? We need this. We need each other. Not more programs, by the way, but more koinonia fellowship. Verse 20. And then he says, after throwing out kind of this warning flare of these, of these antichrists that have gone out, he says, but, but, listen, don't worry, but you have an anointing from the Holy One and you all know. Now this is so important and we're, we're going to get further into this tonight. You have an anointing. You have a chrisma. A chrisma from the root word creo, which is like anointing oil. It's to anoint, to dab. And this anointing's chrisma from creo. Creo is the same root word of Christos, of Christ. Christ is the anointed one. Many of you know this. Christos is just the Greek of Mashiach, the Hebrew, which also means the anointed one. So Jesus is the anointed one, but we have an anointing and we know this. You know what the anointing is? It's the Spirit of Christ. He's the anointed one. It's His Spirit that anoints you and anoints me. And so John says, you know this. You know you have the anointing. You see it in each other. We experience it together. When we share Christ together. There was an anointing on our prayer time. Brief though it was, as I came in a little bit late tonight, and Spencer's there, and the anointing that was shared there was the amazement of God. And I needed to be reminded of that, Spencer. Just to be amazed, as with childlike amazement. How many of y'all have been to Disneyland? Hands, okay. Uh, you know, it's okay, you're forgiven. But how, how many of you are spending money to the holy mouse? But if you've been to Disneyland, think way back. When was the first time you went? Do you remember walking into the park? See, I do. I grew up down there. We went a lot. I remember walking in and just being amazed. Now I walk in and I'm still amazed at all the people. Anyway, amazement. You know, that, that sense of wonder. We need that. 
as followers of Jesus. I'm totally on a tangent here, but there was an anointing in the moment that reminded me of the amazement of God. We see it in each other. Where two or three are gathered together in His name, He's there. That's amazing. That is wonderful. That's the anointing. The anointing of Christ. And get this, please hear this, because I think we've really erred on this one in the church. Don't think of the anointing as a mystical thing that sets one believer over and above another believer. Oh, he's got the anointing. Oh, but she is so anointed. You all are! If we are in Jesus Christ, we are anointed of Jesus. You have an anointing. And this you know. We see it in each other. We experience it together. We are all anointed by the Spirit of God. Now, yeah, people have gifts. People have specific ministries. People have certain callings that take maybe a special anointing in that. But but man, it is not to set us one above the other. In fact, listen to Jesus describe it. He said in Mark 10.43, Whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant. And whoever wishes to be first among you shall be slave of all. And that is the description of the anointing of His Spirit. Well, where do you get that? Because of the next thing He says. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give His life as a ransom for many. That is what the anointing looks like. The anointing is His Spirit. Okay, who anoints me, and if His Spirit is the Spirit of servanthood and humility, then I'm anointed by that. Guess what that makes me? A servant like my Master, who Himself came to serve, not to be served. That's the anointing. And that, by the way, is also the source of Christian koinonia. We have an anointing. And that anointing unifies us. It bonds us together. It's like the captain and Tennille. They were partially right. Remember the captain and Tennille back in the 70s? 1975. Hit song. Love will keep us together. And they divorced in 2014. You know why? This is true. Love will not keep us together. God's love will keep us together. The anointing, which comes of the Spirit of God, that keeps us together. Antichrist break fellowship. But the anointed of Christ, they cling to fellowship. They desire fellowship. We want to be together. Second thing they do, they bring falsehood. They break fellowship and they bring falsehood. Look at verse 21. I have not written to you because you do not know the truth, but because you do know it. And because no lie is of the truth. Who is the liar but the one who denies that Jesus is the Christ? John says here, you know the truth. Now, stay in the flow. He's he's warned them many antichrists have already come and many of them have gone out from us. They're spreading out there in Asia. They're going among the churches, John warns. And the, the warning remains constant for us. There are many antichrists out there. And they may seek to infiltrate church fellowships and they may seek to divide. And they do so by breaking fellowship and by bringing falsehood. But you know the truth. We know the truth. That, that, by the way, is what walking in the light means. It's genuine, honest truth. We're not hiding anything. 
But the Antichrist practice is to shun the truth, to introduce doubt into faith, to induce fear among us, and to bring heresy. So part of what John is doing to these people who he says, you know the truth, no lies of the truth, I'm writing to you because I know that you know the truth and you know you're anointed. But then he says, who is the liar but the one who denies that Jesus is the Christ? And we're right back to the anti-Christ. You might ask the question, how can we then be on the alert? If there are many antichrists out there, we're not to be paranoid, but prepared. If there are many out there, what do we do? How can we be ready? How can we be alert? And I can hear some of you already anticipating my answer to the question. How can we be on the alert against creeping, seeping heresy? And some of you might say, well, Rick, you've told us. Read your Bibles. Know the Word of God. And that's true. But i got to go a step further. Because the truth is, it's not what you know, it's who you know. It's not what you know, it's who you know. You can study the Bible cover to cover, and if you're not looking for Jesus, you can miss the whole thing. You realize that. Study the Scriptures because you think that in them you have life. It is these that testify of Me. It's not what we know as followers of Jesus. It is who we know. Jesus Himself. And He's the one who said, and I quote again, John 8.31, If you continue in My Word, you're truly disciples of Mine, and you will know the truth, and the truth will make you free, and the truth is Jesus. He is the truth. I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through Me. John 14.6 Now this is important. Especially with the advent of heresy, with the many antichrists that are out there and would speak untruths or mistruths or would try to derail you from the truth. How can you know? How can you be sure? It's who you know. It's knowing Jesus. Yes, it's being in the Word. I mean, I've harped on that for 15 years. It is being in the Word, the Word, the Word, the Word. As the Word shows you and teaches you Jesus Christ and knowing who Jesus is, do you have a developed theology of Jesus Christ? A theology of Jesus? Yes. I'll explain in just a second. But but back to this what you know versus who you know thing. I confess to you it used to be such a buzz, still is sometimes, to discover things in the Scriptures to study prophecy, and find out something I'd never seen before, or pick up a new Greek word or phrase and go, whoa, look at how this fits into the Word of God, or to realize something that one of the apostles is saying and how it ties into the Hebrew Scriptures. Man, it fascinates me. And I used to get so much more excited about the nuances and, and the hidden treasures found in the Word of God that I had never seen before. But I'm realizing there's something so much better. That's great. But there is something far better. It's like what Cheryl and I used to call the infatuation phase. You know, and we were guilty of it. I remember a conversation I had years ago with Cheryl's mother. And she was talking about our young relationship and, and we were engaged to be married and we were just, you know, like, ah, see each other. Woo, you know, and the infatuate, we were infatuated. We were in love, you know. And, and I remember her mother saying, one time to me, and her mother was so old way back then. 
And I remember her saying to me, you know, Bill and I, Cheryl's dad, have been married now, I don't even know how long it was then, 25, 30 years. And she said, we don't go all goo-goo over each other like you and Cheryl do. But she said, but I'll tell you what, it's better. It's better. And I think I said something to her, something like, how can it be better than this? (laughs) And I can tell you it's better. See, the infatuation stage is when you start to realize what an amazing word this is. Infatuation stage is you're studying it, you're hungry, and you're even more hungry than you ever thought you could be hungry. And every time you pour over the Scriptures, you just want to do it more. And that's exciting. And the knowledge base is growing. And you're going, yes, I'm starting to understand things I didn't understand before. And your head starts to swell because, you know, knowledge puffs. It's knowing Jesus. That's where this is taking us. You have an anointing from the Holy One, from Jesus Christ. And you know this. And and the truth is in you. That's why I'm writing to you, John says. And he says, however, the liar is the one who denies that Jesus is the Christ. It's not what you know, it's who you know. It's who you know. And the Antichrist may have all kinds of biblical knowledge, but if he denies Jesus as the Christ, you got a big, big Problem. Well, well, who does that? Read on. This is the Antichrist, the one who denies the Father and the Son. Whoever denies the Son does not have the Father. The one who confesses the Son has the Father also. This is what Jesus means when He says, He who has seen Me has seen the Father. John is saying... It is a denial of Christ to consider Him to be anything less than God. Anything less than God is a denial of who Jesus is. And that is of the spirit of Antichrist. you want to get to the Father? Jesus says, no one comes to the Father but through Me. This was at the heart of the error that was going on in John's day, the heresy... Some say it was Gnosticism. Some say it was different things. But this is the heart of the problem of those who split from the church in John's day and it was the damning false doctrine that is the root of every false religious cult today. Same root. You see it in Mormonism. You see it in Jehovah's Witnesses. You see it in the Baha'i faith. You see it in all other religions that deny, devalue, or diminish Jesus as God the Son. God the Son. Those of the Antichrist fear break fellowship, bring falsehood, and they blaspheme Father and Son. It's how you know this person is not functioning with the Spirit of Christ, the anointing of Christ, but rather a different spirit. They blaspheme Father and Son. Keep your finger here and go back to Matthew chapter 12. Matthew chapter 12. And bear with me just for a moment because this is so vitally important to understand. Some of you may be like, well, I know Jesus is God. I'm good with that. Okay, good. But let's solidify that faith and understanding. For those of you who have been unsure, see, I was raised in a Christian home, taught Christian values, taught about Jesus and God and the Holy Spirit. But I had a a, a twisted view A tilted view, if you will. I've shared before of God 
at the top, and then Jesus there, but a little less, and then of course the Holy Spirit a little less than Him. It was kind of a tweaked triangle. Rather than Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, all one God. Different personalities, different aspects of the same one true God. Equal, and yet different in their functions. I I didn't, didn't get that. Why is that so important? I'll tell you in just a second. But Matthew chapter 12, verse 30. Jesus is teaching and He says, He who is not with Me is against Me. And he who does not gather with Me scatters. Now, understand the context of this. The Pharisees have just said He is of His father Beelzebub. They have just claimed that Jesus is tied to Satan. That He is of Satan. That He is not what He is purporting to be. And so Jesus says, He who is not with me is against me. He who does not gather with me scatters. Therefore I say to you, any sin and blasphemy shall be forgiven people, but blasphemy against the Spirit shall not be forgiven. Whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man, it shall be forgiven him. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit, it shall not be forgiven him, either in this age or in the age to come. It is unforgivable to blaspheme the Spirit of God. That's the only sin that is. That's amazing in and of itself, that all other sin is forgivable. All other sin. God's grace is that big. But the one that's not is blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. It's interesting that Jesus, however, says, whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man, it shall be forgiven him. Well, wait a minute. Is the Spirit the Spirit of Christ and therefore... Speaking against Jesus, isn't that blasphemy of the Holy Spirit? No. Actually, it's not. Jesus is clarifying something for us that I think was especially vital in His day and among the apostles. What He's clarifying is this. Get this. Blasphemy is not speaking out of turn. Blasphemy is not speaking in frustration at Jesus or at God. Blasphemy isn't even the denials of Peter and the boys that were about to happen, that would soon take place. It was not blasphemy for Peter to say, I don't know him. No, I don't know him. I told you, I don't know him three times. That wasn't blasphemy. It was not good. But what did Jesus say? Whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man, it shall be forgiven him. And Peter was forgiven. And the apostles, as they fled, were forgiven. So what is the difference? Blasphemy is to diminish the deity of Jesus Christ. Peter didn't do that. Peter denied knowing Jesus, but he never once said Jesus is any less than who Jesus claimed to be. He didn't blaspheme the Holy Spirit. Go ahead and go back to 1 John. In fact, go back to 1 John and skip on past our chapter and look at 1 John chapter 4, verse 2. 1 John 4, 2. Where John says, By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of Antichrist. Of which you have heard that it is coming, and now it is already, John says, already in the world. That spirit is moving about. And it is an Antichrist practice to diminish or devalue Jesus. Anything less than God is not enough. 
He is the radiance of His glory, the exact representation of His nature, and upholds all things by the word of His power. When He had made purification of sins, He sat down at the right hand of the Majesty on high, and I told you when we studied the Hebrew letter, the right hand of the Majesty on high is the seat of authority. Jesus came, God in the flesh, and to deny as he says in chapter 4, that Jesus has come in the flesh. The whole statement, Jesus has come in the flesh, is God has come and put on flesh. As John says at the beginning of his Gospel, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Anything less than Jesus being God is blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. A word spoken against the Son of Man will be forgiven. Spoken out of ignorance. Spoken out of anger. I've had people come to me and say, I was yelling at God. Will He ever forgive me? Yeah, because He knows you're dumb. <laughs> like a child yelling at a parent who doesn't know what they're even talking about. Like Rachel texting me earlier not knowing what she was talking about. I won't go there. No, the idea of... We can lose it toward God. He gets that. We're human. But diminishing Jesus, that is a different thing. Back in chapter 2, verse 24. As for you, let that abide in you which you heard from the beginning. From what beginning? From the beginning of your faith. From the moment you began to believe in Jesus. Let it sink in. Remember what you've heard. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, you also will abide in the Son and in the Father. And interestingly, he does not say you will abide in heavy-duty Bible study. Now, understand, I am all for heavy-duty Bible study. I hope that's obvious. But that's not why, that's not where we abide. We abide with Jesus. We're abiding with Father and Son, which is why we're in the Word. That's the whole point. He goes on and he says, in verse 25, This is the promise which He Himself made to us eternal life. Of all the promises of God, of all the fulfillment of all the promises of God, this is the big one. Eternal life is the deal. This is what it's all about. That's why you're on this planet. You know, to, to make one decision. Just one. To decide to trust in Jesus Christ that you might live forever. Everything else, you know, there's a lot of other decisions we'll make. That's the big one. And even recognizing, wow, eternal life, that's everlasting koinonia. Fellowship with God. To be with Him and in His presence. And if not for that, if not for the promise of eternal life, Christianity is just another world philosophy. A good one. There's a lot of things in Christianity as far as morals go and, and ethics, you know, and in Judaism, there's some good dietary laws, good kosher laws. Don't boil a young goat in its mother's milk. I mean, gross. But it's all just philosophy and value system without the promise of eternal life. That changes everything. We have in Christ the anointing that is preparing us for what we will be. 
And John says in verse 26, These things I have written to you concerning those who are trying to deceive you. As for you, the anointing, here it is again, the anointing which you receive from Him abides in you. And you have no need for anyone to teach you, but as His anointing teaches you about all things, and is true and is not a lie, and just as it has taught you, you abide in Him. And it is the singular verse that terrifies the teaching pastor. You don't need a teacher. Because you have the anointing. And it abides in you. Jesus said, Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. This idea of abiding, that is, that is John's language. Abide in me. And this anointing abides in us. And John here, writing to encourage the hope of eternal life, reminds again there is only one way, and that is through our God and Savior Jesus Christ. His anointing that abides in you. His anointing is upon you and teaches you, and so you abide in Him. John appealing here again to our anointing, which, listen is no anointing at all if it does not cause us to abide in Him. How do I know I have the anointing? I want to be where Jesus is. I light up when people start talking about Jesus. When I hear the name, it moves me. That's the anointing. That's abiding in Him. It's being where He is. But but listen to this. Listen to the context of verse 27, it's so important. He says again, as for you, the anointing which you receive from Him abides in you, and you have no need for anyone to teach you, but as His anointing teaches you about all things, and is true and is not a lie, and just as it has taught you, you abide in Him. I have heard many people take this verse and say, see, we don't need Bible study. We don't need Bible teachers. We have the anointing. And I'm not just trying to protect my job, but that is not what John is saying. What did the early church do? Acts chapter 2, verse 42, they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Well, if teaching was unnecessary, why were they so continual with it? What did Paul tell Timothy to do? 2 Timothy 4.2 Preach the Word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. This was pattern for the early church and for the church today. What did, what did Paul say about teachers? Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11, He gave some as apostles, some as prophets, some as evangelists, some as pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ. So teaching is necessary. And John is not coming around at the end of all of this toward the end of the first century and saying, oh yeah, and by the way, you don't need teachers. Just, just walk around in the anointing. You'll be fine. People think, okay, that's all we need. Listen. The context is everything. The context of verse 27 is regarding Antichrist deceivers. You don't need anyone to to prove to you or to show you who they are. You have the anointing. So you know who they are. You're aware of who they are. Again, these Antichrist deceivers are coming in and they're teaching another Christ... They're teaching another doctrine. They're diminishing Jesus. 
And if you have the anointing of the Spirit of God on you, you know it. You see it. You, you hear it coming. Anyone who comes up to you and tries to teach Jesus as anything less than God Himself. I mentioned Jehovah's Witnesses. Why would I pick on them? Because Jesus, in Jehovah's Witness doctrinal theology, Jesus is the archangel Michael made flesh. He is not God. In Mormonism, Jesus is not God. He is a son of God, but so is Satan. And he just happened to be the one who won the argument and got to come down to earth. Not God. And theologies that come out there and teachers that come out there and they try to diminish Jesus, man, that is a red flag for the anointed. If you have that chrisma, that anointing of Jesus, you know something's wrong with this kind of teaching. You know when the deceivers are diminishing the deity. Now, back to this question. Why do I keep coming up with this deity of Jesus? Why is that so important? There was a time in my life when lacking the information, I might have said, isn't that just a theological difference? You want to say Jesus is God? I, I believe that He is you know, of God, but I don't, I don't know really if, if I would go so far. I don't know if I'm allowed to pray to Jesus. Anyone, anyone in here ever feel that way? I can pray to God, our Father who art in heaven, but can I start a prayer Dear Lord Jesus, I hope so. I hope so. If you have the anointing. (laughs) But why is this so important? What's the big deal? Isaiah 9.6 tells us, A child will be born to us, a son will be given to us. And the government will rest on his shoulders. And his name will be called Wonderful Counselor. Anyone know the rest of it? Mighty God. Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. All four names for Jesus Christ. Mighty God and Everlasting Father are names the prophet Isaiah gave for Jesus Christ. So we know who He is. You with me? Turn in your Bibles back to 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and let's put, let's put a cap on this. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 18. The Apostle Paul writing, he says, Now all things are from God. Okay, I agree. I accept that. Who reconciled us to Himself through Christ. I've believed that for many, many years. And gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Okay, I'm with you, Paul. Namely, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to Himself. He sent Christ, but He was in Christ, God in the flesh. Again, repeating what we've talked about. Not counting their trespasses against them, and He has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Therefore, Paul says, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God were making an appeal through us. We beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God, because He made Him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, so that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. Listen, get this. To say that Jesus is anything less than God is to say that God is less than He is. If you diminish Christ, you diminish God. Because Christ is God. 
And if you say that God is less than He is and Jesus is this lesser being, then what you're saying is that God expressed His love to the world through a secondary being. Here's the problem with Jehovah's Witness theology. Michael the archangel did not die for me. What if he had? Well then, God wouldn't be a very nice God, would He? I need someone to die for my people. Um, Michael, you go do it. How about God Himself? See, the love of God is bound up in this truth. He didn't send someone else to do the job. He came and did it. In the person of Jesus Christ, He gave Himself. In the giving of His Son, He was giving of Himself. And that absolutely, unequivocally proves once and for all the love of God. It is not through a secondary agency. It is not through another. Greater love has no one than this, that one lay down, Jesus said, His life for His friends. And then Jesus said, And you are My friends if you do what I command you. Who has the right to command us anything? God does. And it's personal with God. In God the Son, God the Father's love is proven. Which is why the deity of Christ is so vital. Because you remove the deity of Christ and you diminish the very love of God that gives us salvation and eternal life. Romans 5.8 God demonstrates His own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That's not... Someone else died for us. Well, God sat back in the old man rocking chair. That's not how it works. He put Himself on the line. Why? Because as John tells us in 1 John 4, 8, God is love. And that is a big theology. In fact, it's bigger than theology. It's just love. It's just love. There was a verse I skipped. Ephesians. I want to read it to you. Ephesians 3.17 And here's the deal. Paul prayed that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth of all the Scriptures. No. And to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. Because in Christ Jesus, the love of God is made manifest in its fullness and we know... We know that God loves us because God the Son died for us. Now that brings us into the next section, or toward at least the next section of the letter here. Because we've been talking about walking in the light. Well, now we're going to move into living in the love. For by the love of God, we have been born into the family of God. Note this, verse 28. Now little children, abide in Him so that when He appears... We may have confidence and not shrink away from Him in shame at His coming. If you know that He, that is Christ, is righteous, you know that everyone also who practices righteousness is born of Him. See how great a love the Father has bestowed on us that we should be called or would be called children of God, and such we are. For this reason the world does not know us because it didn't know Him. Beloved, now we are children of God. And it has not appeared as yet what we will be. We know when He appears, we will be like Him. Because we will see Him just as He is. And everyone who has this hope fixed on Him purifies himself just as He is pure. And that whole section we're going to come back to Sunday morning. 
because it's just too good. But listen again to verse 29. Now we move from the theological and into the practical. And this is as practical as it gets in dealing with sin in our lives. Verse 29. If you know that He, Jesus, is righteous, you know that everyone also who practices righteousness is born of Him. Now this is in contrast to the Antichrist spirit. The Antichrist spirit breathes, uh, breathes rebellion. We are born of Him. We are not born of the spirit of rebellion. And that means, since I am born of Him, born again, that means that as He practices righteousness, so do I. I do what He did, because I'm born of Him. How does that work? Verse 4. Everyone who practices sin also practices lawlessness, and sin is lawlessness. Lawlessness is the word in the Greek, anomia. If you put two words together, when you put an A before the beginning of a word in Greek, it tends to negate the word. The word nomos is law. Anomia, anomos, anomia is lawlessness. It's no law. But the word doesn't translate like that. It does kind of. It implies that it's without law, but but understand this. In the entire New Testament, the use of this word is never used for law violational behavior. The word lawlessness, and you'll see it several times in your New Testament scriptures, it's never talking about a speeding ticket. It's never talking about breaking the law. You know, we have certain laws on the books in America, and if you violate those laws, it's lawlessness. And we see a lot of lawlessness taking place even in our government these days. But that's not what he's talking about. It's bigger than that. Matthew is, for one thing, the only gospel writer to use the word anomia. The only one, and he quotes Jesus four times using this word, and every time Jesus uses anomia, he uses it to describe false prophets and those who stand in opposition to the kingdom of God. Two examples. Matthew 7.23, he says, I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice anomia. Lawlessness. So, they break the law. Is that why he says, depart from me? No, he says, depart from me, for I never knew you. We had no relationship. That's anomia. Further, Jesus says in Matthew twenty four twelve, because anomia, lawlessness is increased, most people's love will grow cold. It's more than just breaking the law. It's bigger than that. Paul uses anomia of the power of sin in the world. Romans six nineteen. I'm speaking in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh. For just as you presented your members as slaves to impurity and to anomia, lawlessness, resulting in anomia, lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, resulting in sanctification. The Hebrew pastor uses this word. Now now stay with me. I don't want to lose you on this. It's one of those things that, well, it seems like it's exciting to you, Rick. I'm not so sure it is to me. Anomia. The use of the word, you've got to get this. The Hebrew pastor, he quotes it twice. He's quoting from the Septuagint, the Greek translation. So the way the word anomia is used in the Hebrew Scriptures, in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 9, you have loved righteousness and hated lawlessness, anomia. 
Therefore God your God has anointed you with the oil of gladness above your companions. Hebrews 10.17 And their sins and their lawless deeds, their anomia, I will remember no more. This is bigger than breaking the law. And what John says here is sin is lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. Lawlessness is sin. Why? Because it is willful sin against God's righteous nature. God who is righteous. It's not just that we break His law. It's that we break with His character. With who He is. Anomia. So you understand that word. That's what John is saying. Now watch this. That's the sin he's referring to. It's huge. Verse 5. You know that He, that is Jesus, appeared in order to take away sins. And in Him there is no sin. So Jesus, the sinless one, came to take away sin, and it's inherent in His very name. Matthew one twenty one. She'll bear a son, and you shall call His name Jesus. God saves. Why? For He will save His people from their sins. That's why He came. John one twenty nine. John the Baptist said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And so John says, you know, He appeared to take away sin. Good. Verse 6. Now get this. No one who abides in Him sins. Uncomfortable? A little worried? No one who sins has seen Him or knows Him. Verse 7. Little children, make sure no one deceives you. The one who practices righteousness is righteous. Just as He, Jesus, is righteous. The one who practices sin is of the devil. For the devil has sinned from the beginning. And the Son of God appeared for this purpose, to destroy the works of the devil. This is one of the most confusing for many people and uncomfortable sections of Scripture. Wait a minute. You're saying if I sin, I don't know Him. Show of hands. Anybody not sin in the last two weeks? Should I bring it in? The last week. How's your last week been? Have you been sinless for the last seven days? Anyone? Why, oh, you people are sick. <laughs> today. Anyone sinless today? You're not even willing to take a stab at it. Maybe a little. It was a pretty good day. Why are you asking me, Rick? Hey, listen, based on what John is saying, doesn't it sound like if you sin, you're in trouble? You sin, you don't know Him. If you sin, if you're one of those lawless ones, what's going on here? Listen closely. Watch this. Verse 5 again. You know that He appeared in order to take away sins. Skip down and look at the last part of verse 8. The Son of God appeared for this purpose, to destroy the works of the devil. So now he just said two things that Jesus appeared to do. To take away sins and to destroy the works of the devil. What's the difference? Because aren't the works of the devil sin? I mean, to tempt us, lure us to sin, isn't that? Listen, verse 5. Verse 5 is talking about Him coming to take away the penalty of our sin. He has come... To take away sin. The penalty, gone. At the cross, paid, done. Paid in full. The penalty for all of your sin and mine has been taken care of. Paid in full. That's the penalty of sin. Verse 8 talks about the power of sin. 
And somewhere between verse 5 and verse 8 is where many Christians trip up. I know He's taken away the penalty of sin. But what about the power of sin? Have you ever wondered, I sin and I confess and I truly believe that Jesus Christ takes away the penalty of my sin. Knowing that, why do I repeat it again? I mean, it's like sin and confession is not supposed to be shampoo. Lather, rinse, repeat. Sin, confess, repeat. Sin, confess, repeat. Isn't that what we do? Isn't that what so many of us have done throughout our lives? Sin, confess, repeat. Sin, confess, repeat. You know why? Because we believe He took away the penalty of sin, but we don't believe He's taken away the power of sin. We still think sin has power over us. Based on the Word of God, it does not. The power of sin is broken, was broken at the cross. There's sin. The penalty paid, but there is also the power. And Jesus appeared to destroy both. He destroys the works of the devil. That is the power of sin. Now stay with me on this and turn one last time. Turn back to Colossians chapter 2. Colossians chapter 2. I am absolutely convinced that the reason why so many Christians continue to fall, continue to stumble along in life, instead of living triumphantly, is we believe the penalty is paid, but we do not believe the power is broken. We need to understand something magnificent here. Colossians chapter 2, verse 13. Watch this. When you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, He made you alive together with Him, having forgiven us all our transgressions, having canceled out the certificate of death consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us, and He has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. That's the penalty of sin. Nailed to the cross. The decrees that that pointed out, these are the bad things, these are the bad things you do. Okay, I know those things. He nailed them to the cross. The penalty of sin is paid. But then it says in verse 15... And when He had disarmed the rulers and authorities, He made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through Him. He disarmed the rulers and authorities. That is the power of sin is now broken. The penalty is paid and the power is broken. The power of sin has been disarmed. When the enemy, when the Antichrist spirit, when the demons come against you, when you are lured or tempted to sin, you are lured by an armless knight. I have to go there. Every time I read this verse, I think of Monty Python and the Holy Grail and the Black Knight. And the one knight comes and chops off his arms. He stands in the way, says, None shall pass. And the knight goes, Chop, chop. Spurt, spurt. And he's standing there. And he says, None shall pass. And he has no arms. What are you going to do? Bleed on me. He says... The powers, get this, it's been disarmed. You're fighting an armless man. You can't beat an armless man? What's the matter with you? What's the matter with me? We can't stand up to someone who can't even flail arms at us? It's been disarmed. The power is done. So explain to me, why do we live with Christian defeatism? I can't help myself. I, I, it's just, I know I shouldn't do it. I know. 
But I do anyway. Oh well, I'm just a sinner. Stop it! Well, why? You're telling me I can overcome sin? Yeah, because the power has been broken. What I'm saying to you here, what I believe John is teaching here, is we don't have to sin. We may sin, and if we do sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. But we don't have to. Power's not there anymore. When you are in Christ, when you have the anointing, the, the chrisma of Christos Himself, we don't have to sin. We can raise our hands at the end of the week and say, yes, it was a sinless week. Well, how self-righteous of you. No, how Christ-righteous of me. I have the power. He broke the power of sin and gave me the power of His Holy Spirit. Now, what else do I need? Not only are you fighting an armless man, but you're fighting an armless man with the power of God. I mean, I know the picture is a little ridiculous, but it is huge to understand. We were talking about this this morning, and Jake said, I wish someone told me that when I was a teenager. And I think truly our teenagers need to hear that. You don't have to sin. The world's going to try and make you sin. Friends and people around you and associates, they're going to try and lure you to sin. And the devil himself is going to be hard at it, trying to get you to sin. But you don't have to. You are not bound to it ever again. So the question then becomes... Not, must I sin or what, ha- what happens if I do sin? Man, before the cross, I agree. Before the cross, you're going to sin. And you can't help it. After the cross, the penalty and the power are destroyed. So that means now, there's only one question. What do I practice? What do I practice? Throughout this section, John keeps using this word. You may have noticed it. Practice. He said back in verse 29, everyone who practices righteousness is born of Him. In verse 7 of chapter 3, the one who practices righteousness is righteous. Oh, in verse 8, the one who practices sin is of the devil. What do you practice? That's the question. What am I putting into practice in my life? And this is the practicality I was talking about. The word practice is Poieo in the Greek, and it means to commit, to perform, or to bear, but it's not talking about single events. Whoever commits this sin in this moment, or commits that sin in this moment, in every case, the word practice is in the present active participle, meaning habitual practice. Continual sin. The one who continually works at righteousness, is righteous. The one who continues... We would call, what I would call it is lifestyle lawlessness. This is the problem with certain sin behaviors that people have adopted as just the way I am. I'm just that way. I was born this way, someone says. The problem with that mentality it is a, it's adopting a lifestyle that our culture likes to call a lifestyle choice, but it's actually, it's, it's lifestyle lawlessness. And saying, I live this way. Well, if you live that way, if you are ongoing, habitually practicing, continually doing sin, then you are not of the anointed one. If you practice righteousness, I'm not saying perfect, but practice makes perfect, doesn't it? 
practice heads in that direction. But if your practice, if your ongoing habits are that of righteousness, then you are of the anointed one. I'm rarely surprised, rarely alarmed, when a person comes to me and says, Bless me, Pastor, for I have sinned. Now that would shock me, actually. But when people come and they, and they confess a sin, Hey, Rick, would you pray with me? Man, last week, I don't know why I did this, but blah, here's what I did. That doesn't surprise me. That's what all of us do. I get it. I get it that we trip. We don't intend to. We fall. The lure is there. We don't have to, but we still do sometimes. I understand that. But when someone comes to me over and over and over and over again and again and again, confessing the same sin over and over and over and over and over, I begin to wonder, maybe it's time to reevaluate your faith. If you are living the sin, if you are practicing lawlessness, anomia, if you are giving yourself over to this behavior, or maybe if you just thrown up your hands and said, well, we're already sleeping together, we might as well live together. We'll go to church. But in the meantime, we're going to practice lawlessness. Then I have to raise the question, are you of Jesus Christ? Or are you of Antichrist? Because remember, Antichrist is called the man of lawlessness. The man of anomia. Who do we follow here? We have been freed of the penalty of sin. We have seen the power of sin crushed. What do we practice? Man, practice what you preach. 2 Thessalonians 2.7 says, For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains, that is holding back the lawlessness in the world, will do so until he's taken out of the way. And I believe that speaks of the Holy Spirit in the church. But I think the church has denied a bit, at least, of the Holy Spirit's power when we think that we just have to give in to sin. We don't. We don't have to sin. And that's the point. And lawless sin, by the way, cannot work where it has no power unless we let it. In verse 9 and 10, I'm just going to do two more verses and we'll stop tonight. Verse 9, no one who is born of God practices sin. And that's the point. It's not, oh, I sinned, I must not be born of God. No one who is born of God practices sin. Why? Because his seed, that is the seed of Christ, abides in him and he cannot sin because he is born of God. By this, the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. Anyone who does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor the one who does not love his brother. And there it is. Two things that define the child of God. Two things that show us who the children of God really are. The children of God are empowered to do these two things, and it's there in verse 10, to practice righteousness, not lawlessness, and to practice the love of God. That's who we are. The church needs to hear this message. That we are empowered to be righteous and to be lovers of God and of our brothers and sisters. To walk in holiness and to walk in love. 
That's us. That's what we're here to do. And these, by the way, are also, interestingly, the characteristics of God the Son. He who practices righteousness and who is the love of God incarnate. We see this in Jesus. And He is the Anointed One who anoints us to do the very same thing because the One who is born of God looks like God. It's scary how much I look like my dad. I mean, scary. I mean, I have pictures of the two of us together, you can hardly tell us apart. Which really frightens my wife. We are sons. We are born of God. So we ought to look like God. Listen again to Psalm 2. Picking up in verse 6, it says, But as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Do you all remember what that's talking about? When was Jesus begotten? In the resurrection. In the resurrection. And you don't believe me? Go read Acts 13 because Paul confirms it. It was in the resurrection of Jesus. It was not His birth. But in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, God said, you are the begotten of God. That's the moment. That's the defining moment. The resurrection caused Jesus to be begotten. Guess what? 1 John 3.9 No one who is born of God practices sin because his seed, Christ's seed, abides in him and he cannot sin because he is, and the word there is ganao, he is begotten of God. Your begottenness happened the moment of your spiritual resurrection, that is when you were born again. You became begotten of God. And when a person is begotten, born born again, the seed of Christ literally abides in Him. And with it, the power to practice righteousness and break the power of sin. Let's pray. Father, there's a lot to cover tonight as we look at the behavior, the practices truly of Antichrist and the Antichrist spirit and the Antichrist attitude. The attitude that would replace Jesus or diminish Him. And then, Father, to shift into this secondary section and, and to look at this idea of practicing righteousness instead of sin. It's a lot to take in. I get that. But I pray, Holy Father, that You will seed these things in our hearts. You have given us such an anointing. An anointing that we know. The anointing of Jesus. So Lord Jesus, draw us near to You. And help us believe Your Word to us tonight. May we believe that not only the penalty, but the power is broken as well. May we embrace that we are children of God by the work of the only begotten Son. May we love, Lord Jesus, like You love. And may we practice the very righteousness that You showed us so clearly in Your life. Father, we thank You for Your Word. Draw us near to Jesus, and it's in His name we pray. Amen. Let's stand together and worship Him.